I, as I was, according to custom, telling the boys with hugs and kisses that I love them and good night and doing the same with Kathy, I was about to head out for a time of prayer and study. And I said, now will you please, if you think of it, make sure to pray for Daddy that God will give him words for God's people tomorrow. And, you know, one of the children said something like, we always do that, and, which is good, it's reassuring. But as I was leaving out the door, Ander says to me, because he had just had an opportunity to share this great story with Ashley the other night, and Ashley said, oh, that's a, that's a good sermon illustration. And I said, yeah, I mean, if I can figure out a way to use it. And, but as I was leaving out of the house last night, Ander said, will you make sure to tell them about Bobby Cox? And of course, it was insider information, but I understood what he was talking about because I knew the story to which he was referring. And so I said because I didn't want to be on the hook for too much. If I can, if I can figure out a way to tell them about Bobby Cox, if I can figure out a way to work it in there, I'll do my best. And since we're talking about God's grace for the second time in a row, by God's grace, I figured out just this morning upon awaking, after not many hours of sleep, how to use this story about Bobby Cox. So let me tell you about him. Bobby Cox is a fine man. He's been the manager of the Atlanta Braves for the last 112 years. Okay, not that long. But he just retired last year. It was his last season, and he was the manager when I was a kid, and he was a manager during all the games we've seen up to this point in our boys' lives until this year, and he's a legendary Major League Baseball coach. Well, we, we learned something about Bobby Cox the other day. This story isn't so much about him, but it's, it can be. See, if you've ever watched a Major League Baseball game, you notice that a lot of people wear or have about them in near proximity to their face sunglasses. Now, 82% of the reason they do that is to be cool. The other 18% is because they're useful. They need to be able to see. And so if they're not wearing them on their eyes, you know where they put them sometimes, right? Right on top of their bill of their baseball cap. They prop them up there. Well, in recent years, you've noticed a new development if you've ever watched any Major League Baseball. And if you haven't, you're missing out on a means of grace. You can watch and you'll notice that a lot of Major League Baseball players, at the Braves anyways, are wearing their glasses on the backs of their hats. And you think, oh, that's quite a statement, isn't it? Do they have eyes there? Are they that? Able to see in many different directions? Why do they do this? Is it extra cool to wear your glasses on the back of your hat? Well, the other night, as part of our family devotions, we were listening to Jim Powell and Don Sutton call the Braves game on the radio. And we learned something about those backwards sunglasses. We learned that the reason the boys on the Hot Atlanta Braves wear those glasses on the backs of their heads is because old Bobby Cox had a rule. If you're not wearing your glasses on your face, you're not going to let those glasses obscure the Atlanta Braves insignia on your hat. You're not covering up the Braves. We're the Braves. We have a glorious A. And you're not going to cover it up with your glasses. So if you're not wearing your glasses on your face, 
the guys figured out we better wear them on the backs of our heads so that that A can shine through. Okay, so that's a neat story. How does it fit? Here's how it fits. As we look at the Apostle Paul in the second little study of grace, the Apostle Paul is a test case, as a case study. You start to realize when you look at his life that God does a lot of things in our minds backwards. Not at all the way we would think that he should. Not at all the way we think things should work. He does them backwards so that he makes sure that his insignia is showing on all that he's doing. And the, the Apostle Paul is a, is a very excellent example of this because if you listen to the words that Josh just read, he's, he's in the middle of a defense of himself. He's having to do that a lot, especially with the Corinthian church because it turns out that the Apostle Paul must have been Perhaps a short, squatty, balding fellow, George Costanza-ish, I don't know. We don't know what he looked like, but he wasn't very impressive. Must not have had executive-styled hair. He couldn't talk too good, apparently. He didn't have all the rhetorical flourish, the oratory genius that people would expect in a Greco-Roman world. He was frequently trying to defend the ministry that he had, to tell people, you know, you should listen to me because Jesus has given me some stuff. And so he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. That was with me. And see, the apostle, from the beginning of his association and affiliation with Jesus shows just how backwards God likes to work so that he shows his insignia on the work. So that it eliminates all need of boasting. You remember we said last week as we looked at Ephesians 2 that grace is this gift of God that, that annihilates all boasting. It creates a thing of extravagant beauty. When you look at the apostle's life, you know the story, don't you? He was a, something like a jihadist. He was a religious terrorist making his way to Jerusalem. Angrier than all the righteous people in America combined. And he was on his way to kill Christians and have them put into jail. And you know the story. Jesus blinds him, knocks him off his horse. And as he's blinded, he says, what do you, what do you want from me? And Jesus says, stop it. You're persecuting me. When you mess with my people, you're messing with me. Now, go into the city and listen to what I tell you. And so he's blind for three days, right? And this old fellow gets a vision from God. Hey, I want you to go meet up with this dude, Saul. I have some plans for him. And the guy says, are you kidding? You're going to use a guy from Al-Qaeda to teach about your message of reconciliation in the middle of Manhattan? That's your plan? If I go there, he's going to shoot me. He's got an AK-47! And God says, I know what I'm doing. I work in a backwards kind of way. He is my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to the Jews. He is the one who is going, as phenomenal as it sounds, to let the world know that my anger has been quelled, that Christ lets people of all sorts, even my enemies, become my friends. And so the apostle gets this call from the beginning. It's very backwards. It doesn't make any sense. 
And so from the beginning, he has to understand himself in a new kind of way. And that's the main point of today is that an interaction with God's grace gives you a new way of seeing yourself and everything else. An interaction with this, this gift of God. This association of God pouring his life out into us and his acceptance that we can't earn or deserve. This grace gives us a new way of seeing ourselves and everything else. You've probably heard it said before, but the apostle, after he gets this new kind of vision... And you realize even when he met up with Jesus, his encounter with Jesus blinded him. It was so bright and brilliant. And when he came to, as it were, it's interesting, isn't it, that something like scales fell off of his eyes. He could see again. He had a new perspective on everything. He could literally see, but he could see He could see what was up. He could see what God was up to. He could understand himself. He could understand what was really going on on the planet. And see, because that's what grace does. And as the apostle begins his ministry, you see early on here with the Corinthians, he's saying, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the the most freakish one, the most abnormal of all these twelve. I'm the 12th man on the bench. Well, as you've probably heard said before, as you get later on in his life, you look at his correspondence to the Ephesian church where he's, again, heralding this grace that's been entrusted to him, this administration, he says, of God's grace that was given to me for you, because that's what grace is always about. Something God gives to us for the good of everybody else around us. And he says, even though I'm less than the least of all God's people... He says. He starts out, he's like the 12th man on the bench, and now he's saying, of all God's people, which are, you know, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, the grains of sand, I'm, I'm less than the least of all those. And then at the end of his life, there's this really touching scene. And these letters that he writes to Timothy, he's deserted, he knows he's about to die. And he says, you know, sometimes I can't get over it. That God picked me. He's so backwards. That he picked me. That he let me be a co-contributor. A co-laborer with his world-reconciling business. And I, I I was a violent man. I was not the sort of guy that you want as a candidate for ministry. And he says, but the grace of Jesus was poured out on me abundantly. This is a trustworthy saying. It deserves full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And you say, what? This guy who was the 12th man of the apostles, and then he thinks he's less than the least of all God's people, and now he's saying he's worse than everybody? Or he's the best of all the sinners? That's not the sort of thing people on America's Got Talent boast about. And yet he says, I boast about it. You know why? Because you see, it's been my privilege for all these many years since my association with Jesus, since my run-in with the freight train of His grace to be a piece of art in God's museum 
dazzlingly depicting all the wonders of Christ's patience. People get to look at me. They get to know something about my story. And when they do, they get to know something even better about the Savior. How infinitely patient He is. Now that's really, that's an excellent kind of news if you know yourself to be someone who needs a lot of patience from God. If you know yourself to be the kind of person who's failing in a lot of respects, you feel like, ah, I'm not doing a very good job of being a dad or being a mom or being an employee or being much of anything. I sure seem to be a good bit of a spiritual flunky. My spiritual SATs are quite low. And yet, this Savior is infinitely patient and He picks this guy in this backwards way to show the world how patient He is. And the patience is for everyone who will come to Him. See, the Apostle demonstrates what all kinds of people have discovered in their lives as they marinate in this grace of God, as they learn to count on this kindness from God that gives us most when we deserve it least, is that as you age, as the work of God's Spirit in you, the presence of His light in you increases, you're bound to discover more dirt. Perhaps you've heard me say before, it's when you get in those well-lit, brightly, fluorescently lit mirrors that all the imperfections on your mug show up. You look a lot better in a dimly lit room, don't you? Your pores seem a lot better. Okay. But as the presence of God's grace gets its work into somebody, you know what happens? Increasingly... The dirt shows up. Increasingly, the apostle, like many of you, starts to realize, wow, I'm not really so hot as I once thought. Now, you could say, and even rightly say to someone who, over the course of their lives, began to feel worse and worse about themselves, you could say, no, Apostle Paul, that's a bad self-talk. You're never going to get anywhere at all in the world thinking of yourself like that. And if that was all he thought about himself, just how bad he was, that would be absolutely right. But, you know what's happened? Is as he's become less and less enamored with himself, as he's become more and more disenfranchised with himself, he's become more and more enamored and more engaged with the Savior who has so much to do with him in spite of it. And so, it doesn't really matter about him. He's learned not to really think about him so much because he's representing someone else. It's someone else's insignia that's on him. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay in another place so that everybody will know that the power's not from us. We're beat up like a football. We're scuffed up like an old pair of loafers. But we keep enduring. We keep rolling. We keep... Letting people see this Jesus to show that the power is not from us, but it's from Him. We're vessels. He works backwards so that the insignia of God can be seen to everybody. So that they'll want some of this grace. So that they'll recognize, I need that kind of treatment from God. That kind of favor from God because I, I can't stand before Him on my own. See, this grace begins to give you a new way of seeing yourself. It also helps you to understand 
everything else too, like the suffering that comes your way. You know that story, right, of the Apostle? We're continuing with a case study of him where he is talking about these surpassingly great revelations he's been receiving. Better even than Percy Stone or John Hagee with big murals on the wall. He's having visions of heaven. He's having God imprint things on his mind. And he says to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, a messenger from Satan was sent to torment me. A thorn in the flesh, he says. And I begged God. He says three times I asked for him to remove it. But he's essentially saying, I asked over and over, take this away from me. Give me relief. And God said, not going to do it. Not going to do it. Here's why. Because my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And the apostle said, oh, oh, I get it now because... The Proverbs say that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And when somebody's absolutely aware, when they've been completely weaned off of themselves, they start to be completely humble. They realize that they're not all that hot. Their power, their provision, their resources, their love, their everything has to come from outside of them. Then... He realized, oh, so I can actually start to delight and insults, and hardships, and persecutions, and weaknesses, because when I am weak, I'm a magnet for God. That's when His strength rests on me. You see how backwards that is? Is You can actually lean into all the things that are happening in your life right now that you want and need and insist and are begging God to make go away. And sometimes He does make them go away, Hallelujah. But sometimes he's asking you to endure something like your spouse or like a rebellious child or like your joblessness or like your job fullness, the people you're having to work with and for. Because he's trying to wean you off yourself to get you in this position where you can be like Bill Murray and What About Bob? Have you seen this movie? If you haven't, you need to see it this afternoon. It'll change your life. It won't change your life, but it might make you laugh. Bill Murray plays this man who is gifted with many neuroses. His pathologies are corrupted and broken beyond repair, and he is latched on to this Richard Dreyfuss's character, Dr. Leo Marvin, the psychiatrist, who's garnering some acclaim in the world around him. And Bob, played by Bill Murray, is latched on. He's begun to get help. He invades a vacation And there's this one scene where this very needy man, this very annoying man, this man who's driving the psychiatrist to the brink of insanity himself, says this, and I haven't seen this movie probably in 20 years, but he says to Dr. Marvin, Give me, give me, give me! I need! I need! This does not engender a great deal of love and affection from Dr. Marvin. But it does illustrate the kind of position that God in His great affection, His tremendous loyalty and His great commitment to making you something that you don't even have a vision for right now, that's how He's at work in you, getting you to that point where you'll be empty-handed, 
where in insult and persecution and hardship, where things are not going as you wish they would, and you're showing yourself to be someone who's gravely disappointing, you say to God, give me, give me, give me. I need, I need. Call upon me in the day of trouble, God says, and I will deliver you. You'll get what you need, and I'll get glory, he says. You will honor me by your need. I can tell you that it rearranges your perception of all the things in your life that you hate. It doesn't make you like them. But it lets you appreciate them as opportunities for God's grace to rest on you, for His favor to settle on you, to plaster you, to give you endurance. That's why John Newton could write these things in one of his hymns. You might have heard this hymn before. When he says this, I asked the Lord, you know, John Newton was the man who wrote Amazing Grace. He was formerly a slave owner. And he got radically renewed by a pursuing Savior. And he says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. The kind of thing when you start to get an acquaintanceship with Jesus that you start to want. Let me know more of you. I want to know more of your grace. I want to grow in your love. I want to grow in my ability to please you and to serve others. And he says, it was he who taught me thus to pray. And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But, here's that backwards thing again, Bobby Cox. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Have you ever known that sensation where you're longing for more of God's grace? You're longing for him to change something bad about you, change something about your circumstance. Make me more loving. And you're hoping that by the flick of a switch, a bolt of energy will come into you and you'll have amorous desire for your spouse. You'll be able to enduringly, patiently put up with your Little snakes who live, uh, children who live in your house. You're, you're hoping that your, your boss will suddenly come with, become someone you see through God's eyes. A beloved child of God, not like the guy in office space. And, and then as you do that, you realize, well, God doesn't seem to do it that way very much. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. But there's more. He let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. So even though that rhymes, that's treacherous. He made me feel the evils of my heart. He let the, he let the fury of hell come at me. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. God became my little brother who seemed to exist for no other purpose than to agitate me. Who seemed to exist for no other purpose than to make my life miserable. To steal my things. To make me cuss. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Cast out my feelings. Laid me low. Thank you, Lord. Lord, why this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your worm to death? 
And God answers. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break the schemes, your schemes, of earthly joy that thou may seek your all in me, that thou may seek your all in me. What are you up to, Lord? And every now and again, he says, you don't want to know why I'm work in a backwards way because we live in an upside-down world and you're all convoluted and you think you know what's best for you and you think you know what's going to fix you and you think you know what if it just got repaired, everything would be set and right and you are not very clever, son, daughter. And so these inward trials I employ to, to set you free from yourself to wean you off of uh, yourself, to deprive you of all the consolations you might think you need so that you will seek your all in me. My professor Steve Brown said when he left his church in Coral Gables, uh, Key Biscayne, Florida, he said, I was on top of the world, man. Our church was growing. We had more money than we could handle. I was being asked to speak all over the country. I was writing a book a year. I thought, God, you, how are you even getting by without me? He's being a little bit facetious when he says that, but he says, you know what happened to me when I left? I almost had a nervous breakdown. You know why I almost had a nervous breakdown? Because my father loved me. I almost had a nervous breakdown because he said, my father loved me. Because if God knows he is the best gift to you, and he's the God who gives gifts, that's what grace is all about, then he's going to do everything he can to diligently and unassailably keep after you until all your defenses are down, until you cry, uncle, so he can give you himself. So you can revel in His grace. So His insignia will be on your life and your life might seem all the way backwards. But you'll be able to rejoice in the backwardness of it because He's so much at work. Grace gives you a new way of seeing yourself and everything else. And I'm going to close with this. I'm leaving out lots, lots. I know it's hot. I'm leaving out three hours worth of stuff here. So you ought to thank me. But Kathy and I were watching this show the other night that, if you don't approve of it, Lynn Teague told us we had to watch it. And, okay, he didn't tell us we had to watch it. He doesn't, I take no coaxing. If someone says to watch something, I'm like, okay, do you have it? Can I watch it right now? And in this show called Parenthood, as I watch this show, I frequently have this strange sensation of water in my eyes. Tears. And it's a very moving, compelling drama about uh, parenthood. It's called Parenthood. And there's this one scene where this young girl, 18-year-old, very bright, very snarky. She's had all her hopes banked on getting into UC Berkeley. She's been rejected from the college of her choice. She thinks her life is over. She starts to rebel and drink and smoke them left-handed cigarettes, and she gets in this bad accident with this 
unseemly dude and the car is mangled and she's barely alive. And after the accident, she doesn't seem to understand the severity of her situation. She doesn't seem to understand what, what she's caused her family and she doesn't seem to understand what she's on the verge of giving up. And so her grandfather, because she's still hardened, her grandfather takes her to the junkyard where this mangled mess of metal still resides after the wreck. It's barely even a car anymore. And as they're walking in, and her grandfather, I mean, who wouldn't want to have a grandfather like Craig T. Nelson, all right? He used to be coach on that show. He says to her, you recognize this? As they look at this car, that's barely recognizable. And in flattened, standoffish tone, she says, yeah, it's the car. It's Gary's car. And he says, uh-huh. Come here. Are you looking? Are you looking? She says, yes, I see it. And he says, Amber, you know I was two years in Vietnam. And you know what I thought about? You know what held me up while I was there? It was the thought of coming home. The thought of having a family. The thought of having grandchildren. I dreamed you, Amber. I dreamed you, Amber, and Hattie, and Drew, and Sydney, and Jabbar, and Max. And we almost lost you, Amber. We almost lost you. I know you've had some bad breaks, he says to her in his sensitive way. I know you're not feeling good about yourself, that you didn't get into Berkeley. Well, boo friggin' who? <laughs> Pinnacle of grandfatherness. You gotta suck it up, girl. You're a braverman. That's their last name. You got my blood in your veins. If you ever do something like this again, if you ever even think of doing something like this again, I promise you, I will personally kick your, my editorial insertion, Bohonkis, all the way to the Golden Gate Bridge. Do you understand me? As she looks with a bit of terror and a bit of sadness, and he says, you do not have permission to mess with my dreams. Are we clear? You don't have permission to mess with my dreams, and I dreamed you. Are we clear, he says. And that point brings about a breaking of a dam within her. Her defenses are laid low, and she starts to sob uncontrollably. I'm sorry, she says. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And as she cries out, I'm sorry, he looks at her and he says, good. And he throws his arm around her and he walks her out of the junkyard. And he says, are you hungry? I'll buy you a burger. Craig T. Nelson is not in that moment the warmest of men, but when she catches a glimpse of this tenacious loyalty, of this persistent kind of love that says, girl, you are mine. You bear my name. You've got my life in you. You're a part of my dream. And I'm not going to let you mess yourself up. He calls her to something bigger. He calls her to something better. And your Savior, who operates solely by grace, 
says the same thing to you, except not you're a braver man. But he does say, I dreamed you. Before you ever did a thing, good or bad, you were pre-loved, and now I call you to me. And those who trust in Christ, they have Christ living in their veins. You belong to Him, and you don't have permission to mess with His dreams. And His dream for you is good. His plan for you is good. And so no matter what is happening, you can say, oh yes, He works in this backwards way so that His insignia can be plain and clear on my life, and I can, like the Apostle Paul, revel in being a part of His dream. I hope that you will join me today in believing this that is nearly unbelievable. That He withholds, that you may ask, that He deprives, that you may learn to seek your all in Him. It's the richest, the most backwards, but the best kind of gift from God. Amen.